This is Talking Ears. My name is Juan Vasquez. I'm really excited to introduce my mentor and really the first person who got me into music audiology, Dr. Matt Bell, a musician turned into audiologist. He is someone who I looked up to, who did the exact same thing as I did. Went into music, then became a doctor of hearing, specializing with this special population of musicians. Juan, it was so interesting to hear you talking with Matt, Dr. Bell, and it's so clear from his conversation that his life calling is music and his passion is educating and bringing up the students to understand what, what we do in music audiology. I feel a little spoiled, to be honest, to <laughs> have had this training. It was just only something that motivated me more and really was the first introduction to this connection with a musical background and a newly formed passion for hearing healthcare. I was really inspired listening to him talk about how out of the box he is with his approach to teaching, that he's bringing guitar amps and I think I could listen to intelligent professors talk about how they arrange their courses and how they mm -hmm. thought about it from like a top level. I could listen to that all day long. And I'm so glad that we have that chance today. It was such an honor to have him on our show. I'm so glad he was able to do it. Totally. Yeah. And his passion of teaching and his approach to the future generation. And the music we're going to hear during this episode is actually from Matt Bell and a couple bands that he's been in throughout the years. So here is Matt Bell. Enjoy the show. You know, it kind of came to me later, um, after I'd already developed tinnitus and pretty good 4K notch, that all that work in the music industry, including a, a degree at a accredited university that has an audiology program, working for a major cruise line, um, Nobody ever mentioned hearing conservation. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever told me that, hey, did you know that your ears are eventually going to not stop ringing if you, <laughs> if mm -hmm. you don't be careful? Yeah. And it, 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 I found it astounding and a little bit depressing that we were just, musicians were just kind of this lost, lost group that really wasn't being managed, um, even from a simple educational standpoint. And then I, I remember I was working on a cruise ship and one of the other musicians, we were in St. Thomas, I think, and one of the other musicians was going to the local audiologist to get ear impressions hmm. for musician earplugs. Hmm. They didn't really understand what they were. He made them sound like there was some magical device that you could you know, turn a volume wheel on and turn them down, which hmm. didn't exist then. They sort of do now. Hmm. But that was the first time I'd ever heard of anything available to help hmm. prevent that into the gig nightmare of temporary threshold shifts and raging tinnitus. And when did you first notice your tinnitus? Was it during the touring or was it... Uh... No, my tinnitus came on pretty early. Um, I remember it was my 21st birthday, and I had gone to a heavy metal bar in Salt Lake City to see Dream Theater nice. um, <laughs> on their tour right before they broke with uh, images and words, I think yeah. it was. And, I mean, I had no idea that it was going to be that loud in a bar. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'd been to arena concerts. You know, I'd seen Judas Priest and Megadeth and Slayer and all those kind of heavy hitters in the, in the arena, but I didn't realize that the bar was going to be that loud. And I stood really close to the stage. I wanted to see you know the guitar player, and it's just a brutal assault for two hours. And that was the first time the tinnitus didn't go away. There was one time I was at an arena show. It was outdoors too, so you know. Back then, I thought, "Oh, okay, well, it'll it'll be fine." Of course, then never wore hearing protection at shows. Occasionally during band practice, but it was towards the end of the show. They were, you know, we knew that they were going to do the encore, but then my ears just went, you know, that electrical static sound from, you know. I heard that and I said, what the hell was that? And that scared me, you know, because that was the, one of the first times where I said, that's that's weird. You know, I've been to shows before and my ears are numb and fatigued and I have the ringing, but it was odd that I heard something electrical breaking. I just go, that's abnormal. Yeah. <laughs> scary. <laughs> so, totally scary. It's got the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that stories like that can you know, potentially get us to think a little differently about it. Maybe not so quick. I, I for sure remember that. I remember the sound. She walks in, her eyes collide, my stomach ties and not inside. She shuts them out and locks me in, expels all yeah. my chest. Sometimes it's a good thing. I'm, yeah, I was fortunate to see Stevie Ray Vaughan um, the year before he died, and I remember, I mean, there he is, and there's that wall of amps. Mm-hmm. And I was way in the back, and it was an outdoor show, and it wasn't loud at all back where we were. I thought, I've got to get up there, man. i got to experience this. Yeah. I got up to, you know, close to the front, right in front of his wall, and all his amps were on at once. And it was just, I mean, it was a beautiful experience, but I'm sure it, I'm sure <laughs> it had a negative effect on my hearing. It definitely makes me think about something, though, like John Petrucci, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, like the guitar tone that they're going for. Juan and I have talked about Nine Inch Nails, the sounds that they're going for. There is an element of this sounds like it's breaking you a little bit. You know, this sounds like, you know, it sounds wrong. It sounds broken. It sounds like nasty in that like perfect way. And that is also how your ear sounds as it's being broken by it. It's got to be like, it's on purpose, you know? It's a, it's emulating the experience of being overwhelmed. And then you have that experience of being overwhelmed. And it's, it's like you said, loudness is such a beautiful thing in those moments. For sure.
You don't hold it against him, right? Against Dream Theater and John Petrucci. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, what an amazing musician. Oh, uh, yeah. The whole band. I mean, just in the heyday of their rise to what they've become. Yeah. It's got to be, you know, it's got to be loud. I get it. I just, I didn't know any better. I didn't know there were any options. Yeah. And truthfully, yeah. probably they didn't at the time either. Yeah. Late eighties. Unfortunately, that's right when the musician's earplug was being created. <laughs> so right. it, it wasn't, it wasn't a common thing that was known. Certainly. Yeah. And you, you certainly knew that when you put the foam foamies in or, you know, in a pinch, you roll up the tissue and <laughs> stuff it in there and you, it comes out a minute later because mm-hmm. it's just, it ruins mm-hmm. the experience. Totally. You know, it just doesn't sound good. And that's why I never use them. And I, it's funny, I, I still see the tissues <laughs> in people's ears. You yeah. Know, they go into the bathroom, you know, take some toilet tissue, roll it up. <laughs> I heard somebody put the G, uh, a G-rated spin on the old thing that we probably won't say on this show, but they said it's like wearing a raincoat to a water slide. <laughs> nice. That sounds uncomfortable and horrible. And it won't stop you from getting wet. <laughs> I like that. so i do remember being at your shows at the pub classic rocks just being played uh, particularly with the year two students that we just had a crazy time (laughs) but i recall that you were the only one using hearing protection you know, of course, naturally, you know, is, is you know, a uh, very well-informed uh, audiologist, but also a musician who cares so deeply about uh, their ears. What was that like for your other bandmates? Because I'm not really sure if they wore anything. Yeah, they, they didn't. I, I tried. You know, I started using the ER9s when I performed. Um, the 15s were just a little too much, and I'd find myself, you know, picking harder. And, mm-hmm. But with the ER9s, I... I taught myself to, to be able to perform with them, and I don't. I won't play without them now. And for the benefit of the listener, the ER nines and ER fifteens that Matt is mentioning here are just two of the levels of filters available in musicians' earplugs. Nine does about nine decibels, and fifteen does about fifteen decibels of sound attenuation. Yeah, and Rain Driver was really loud. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the reasons was the drummer, of course. We all know the drummer is primarily responsible for driving the volume up, right? Mm-hmm. And our drummer was a real heavy hitter. And then two guitar players playing tube amps, competing with each other. And it was loud. <laughs> it yeah. was really loud. <laughs> and I, I remember I, was always, I would always bring a box of foamies and put them up front. Please take one if you're, if you're uncomfortable. <laughs> but I tried. I, I tested the other guitar player. He actually had better hearing than I do. I fit him with the R15s, and I remember I brought him to him at rehearsal. I, I must have done a really, really poor job of preparing him and counseling him because I remember with, within 10 minutes, like the second tune of rehearsal, out they came. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he never used them since. Mm-hmm. It's his choice. Uh, I had told him why I wore mine and what, that I had you know, tinnitus and, and hearing loss, and he made that choice. I did eventually get the drummer to wear uh, a Music Pro 
because he was starting to have more significant issues. Uh, but that didn't happen until near the end of the band. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And I, I recorded some of our rehearsals. I took my sound level meter and we were a true garage band. We rehearsed in, in, in the garage. And, you know, it was a pretty steady 102 with 108 dB peaks. But that's how it needed to be. Yeah. Can you, um, because the Music Pro doesn't come up too often, can you explain just to to whoever's listening um, what that is and why it's different from like the the custom plugs briefly? So it's it's electronic hearing protector. When you insert the devices, it electronically reestablishes the insertion loss. So it makes up for the insertion loss to try to give you a natural sound quality when the sound levels are below the knee point, which I believe is around 75 Mm-hmm. And then as sound levels rise above the knee point, just like a compressing hearing aid um, production kicks in. When the sound levels reach uh, hazardous levels, the 9 or 15 dB of reduction will kick in, and then it has a hard limit. So it's 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 uh, pretty high fidelity. From you know, I used it a couple of times on gigs, and it, it sounded probably better than my ER15s hmm. as far as the bandwidth. You know, didn't feel like it altered the... So I've recommended those to um, people that need to communicate between songs or between rehearsals, band directors mm-hmm. or musicians, sometimes who have a little bit of hearing loss because there is a setting in the 9 dB setting. It provides a little bit of uh, gain for soft sounds. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of get a, a truly analog, high-fidelity hearing aid for mild losses. I'm so glad you mentioned that because we haven't talked about that too much. And I feel like it's not used as much as it should be. Well, it's great to hear because, you know, like you said, in developing the course, you wanted to emphasize the notion that there are options, you know, not just one thing that, you know, the provider says and that's it and you have to do this because they say so. But, you know, uh, one powerful thing that, was you know carried with me for years now was the education part and how that's just so important and everyone is saying that dr santucci dr maliak you know uh, us here you know it's it's all about learning at least learning about what's going on and then through that hopefully that insight develops and they're motivated to do something. And because of that, they're empowered. And so it's just this snowball effect almost. And it just, it, it helps uh, provide something incredibly special, I think. Yeah, it's hugely important, you know, education on the risks and the options, you know, specific things that you can do, the simple things right. that, you know, audiologists learn all about in acoustics. Can you uh, alter the acoustics of the room to reduce reflections? Yeah. You know, for, for those of us that have to have our amps loud, can you use a baffle mm-hmm. you know, to try to reduce at least the directional <laughs> laser beam effect of a, of a 12-inch speaker dimed? You know? Sometimes, I've, I think anyway, the musicians just need to know there's these other options. They're not going to have to wear earplugs necessarily. Yes, sometimes there are circumstances where that will be my main recommendation, you know, based on the way they describe their situations. But other times, you know, hey, let's try this, you know, a simple modification of the environment. Um, Or even just taking a break. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I tried to learn to not throw earplugs at people without also at least providing them with some other option. Right. 
clinically, I've found it's sometimes easier to gain the trust of a musician if we share an experience. Definitely. Um, so one of the things I tried to do with the, when I first developed the course, because it was prior to the, uh, the AAA consensus document mm-hmm. coming out when I first started to teach the class, and so there really wasn't anything that I was aware of as far as, you know, kind of specific guidance and and tutoring. But one of the things I tried to instill into that class was what makes a musician different as a patient? What makes them a special population? You know, because I consider them a special population. I put some thought into that to try to teach a non-musical person at least a little bit about what goes on in the mind of a mad musician (laughs) when they're going about their business of of their uh, art, you know. I think that's one thing I loved too, is when you said we're working with musicians, at least for audiologists, there are things that are more in common than we think. It's actually something that we've had uh, on the show before, conversations. We talk the same language, but just speak in different dialects. And so you presenting it that way really helps make sense for non-musical-minded people becoming audiologists, learning how they could quite easily learn how to talk the talk, you know, as far as with musicians goes. Yeah, at least, you know, on a, on a basic level of uh, understanding that, well, when a musician talks about EQ, well, an audiologist knows what EQ is. We just don't call it that. Mm-hmm. Right. Overdrive or distortion or compression. Most of my experience is in amplified music, so that's a pretty common thing that gets discussed, especially amongst guitar players. Mm-hmm. Tone, tone, tone. Audiologists learn to understand all those terms as well, just in a different way. Mm-hmm. I remember presenting to the Oregon Academy of Audiology some years back. I think I had a title of my talk was "Distortion Can Be a Good Thing," um, <laughs> you know. And it, uh, I brought my little Marshall, uh, my little Marshall one watt amp tube amp in there and demonstrated why musicians, guitar players in particular need to have a certain amount of <laughs> of moving air and and we need to get those amps working because mm-hmm. you guys have probably heard it you know why can't you just turn it down <laughs> well <laughs> so i try i made an effort to try to demonstrate at least from yeah. a guitarist standpoint why <laughs> sometimes i can't turn it down yeah it's not the same yeah it's not the same and it's not just a sound thing it's the way it interacts with your instrument and your body um the feel is completely different. You guys are both guitar players, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's easy so. to talk to somebody like you. You guys get it, but um, to try to explain it to a room full of non-musical audiologists or students, that was my attempt to do that. That's awesome. I love that that idea of doing a physical demonstration of a guitar amp. I heard a, mm-hmm. a good demonstration where somebody said, "Think of a snare drum." as a distortion without the snares it's just a drum and nobody likes that so the snares add this quality that makes it emulate being loud so that's what distortion is on a guitar it's the trick to make you think that it's louder than it is but i love that idea bring in the the amp show it what it sounds like when it's loud it's much cooler totally yeah yeah i had to be careful because it is a room full of audiologists and audiology (laughs) students so my little amp can go down to 0.1 watt. So if I really need to push it into breakup, but I don't want to offend anyone, I can right. still do it. <laughs> you have to provide options that will not affect the ability to perform. 
Mm-hmm. If you just say you gotta turn it down or you have to wear these foam earplugs, you guys know what's gonna happen. <laughs> they, yeah, nothing happens. <laughs> they say, okay, fine, and they walk out the door and then nothing changes. It's such a struggle in a clinical environment often, especially if you're not the owner of the practice, <laughs> to justify the time that I want to spend. If somebody comes in for ear impressions, well, okay, I have them for X amount of time. What can I do? How much education can I instill in them within that time? Because, you know, the economics of running a clinic sometimes don't allow you to spend an hour with a patient when I, that's what I would want to do. You know, I'm somewhat spoiled in university clinics often because I tend to have a little more time, but there's also pressure for that to change. You know, yeah. finding a way for audiologists to feel confident and comfortable charging for our expertise and not just charging for a product. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a struggle sometimes, at least for me. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think Heather, who we've spoken to as well, she really does emphasize on just, you know, even just being with the audiologist, the expertise that you're going to be learning and getting within that appointment. You know, I I firmly believe that it's, there's a lot of weight to it. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot to say with just receiving that expertise rather than just paying for a product, you know. The widget or something. Sure. Yeah, I keep thinking about how we, as audiologists, keep talking about like the audiology perspective. I wonder if you have any perspective to give then to the flip side. So a musician is coming into an audiologist's location center. Um, you know, it's our world. It's it's our clinic. You know, how would you? Because we want the audiologist to act a certain way or to consider a certain thing or, you know, weigh the pros and cons of spending extra time versus the movement of the clinic. And sometimes you feel rushed, but sometimes you're able to spend extra time. So the musician sometimes gets kind of a, they get a variable experience. (laughs) Let's say it kindly when they go to the audiology um, office, sometimes they feel like they're rushed in and out. Sometimes they feel like they're given lots of uh, time and, and attention and sometimes they don't know that maybe they can ask for things like a hearing test or they can ask these bigger questions of how to protect themselves, what other options they have. Do you have any advice to the musician? I guess st- you know, not being afraid to stand up for you and what you know as a musician. I know what I need to hear and feel and experience to be able to play. And I don't need somebody else telling me what they think I need. Mm. You know, I need them to listen and uh let me tell my story. You know, I, I guess I can I think back to the, probably the first time I had my hearing test at a university clinic, and it was students, and they did a fine job. You know, I said, I'm a musician, you know, I have tinnitus, I'm concerned. 
I made it very clear that I was an electric guitar player and that I knew when it had started and the circumstances of it. And they just kind of bulldozed me into, well, because on my case history form, I had indicated that when I was in Boy Scouts, I shot 22s. <laughs> and my notch at that time was a little worse in my left ear because I wore a click track in my left ear for two hours a night. You know, there was like a shotgun going off in pace with my heartbeat. They completely ignored everything else on my case history. And I walked out of that clinic with no faith that they would be able to do anything to help me. It actually goes back to my time at University of Washington. They didn't have any focus on musicians at that time. And one of my very first patients in clinic was a guitar player. Mm. I read through his case history and I was thinking, you know, I'm a second year student. I'm thinking, ah, oh, I'm going to take care of this guy. This is going to be amazing. And he walked in. First thing he said is, you know, I play loud guitar. You're going to tell me to turn it down and I can't turn it down. My supervisor and I didn't really have any answers to that. So I feel like my first experience with a musician was a resounding failure because I didn't know how to, how to help this person. And he came to the clinic for a reason. Right. And he walked out with, without a solution. That's probably the impetus behind why I've decided to pursue this as a focus of my career, you know, yeah. to be able to help in some way. So, I mean, I guess that's a long-winded way of, of saying, you know, work on our counseling skills and listening skills and mm -hmm. um, basic stuff that's easy to forget and overlook in the moment, especially when you've got some knowledge and you, you want to apply it. I don't know if I answered your question, but... <laughs> you did. You did in spades. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you did share that story. That actually was something that I don't think I ever knew, but something that I thought would be interesting to ask is if you had an experience with getting Absolutely. hearing checked out and what that was like. Yeah, I, you know, still to this day, I, I have a mental picture of that gentleman in his leather jacket and uh, talking about his Marshall. All my musical knowledge failed me in that moment. I tried to give myself a little bit of slack. I was a student and <laughs> I, hadn't, I had no knowledge at that point about anything music audiology related. But that's when I started to do my homework. And um, my, my first project in one of my AD classes was to develop an informational handout about musicians' earplugs. 
And then years later, I come along and I <laughs> bother you about, Dr. Bell, can we please do that music capstone? <laughs> <laughs> it's never a bother, Juan. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, it was just uh, something that was so enriching, you know, and just a breath of fresh air for me to, mm-hmm. one, as a musician, going into hearing wellness and hearing healthcare, but being uncertain if I could actually use my music knowledge and be able to help people, other musicians, you know, with that essentially same path almost, you know what I mean? It's it's like going back to me saying we talk the same language, just, you know, using a different dialect. It was so great knowing that you were there with, you know, a similar history, such as myself, you know, guitar players and loud bands and going to heavy metal shows, we can do something with it. Then we developed that uh, protocol for the clinic, which was so much fun. And I loved that we, you emphasized the value of what we're actually doing. Education being the largest component, but what tests are we doing? What questions are we asking? What options can we provide? Yeah, the simple things, you know, you guys know. Simple things like test extended high frequencies. Anybody, any musician really, but especially the ones that are dealing with high frequencies mm-hmm. beyond AK, either in their tone or in the, the other instruments in the ensemble or recording. It just seems like such an obvious thing to do. And yet so few of us, at least in my experience, and I don't want to speak for the entire audiology community by any stretch, but in my experience, until I come along, nobody's ever done it in the clinics where I've worked. Mm-hmm. And they just don't know. Those, you know, those cans sit on the wall and never get used. <laughs> every year, every year they get calibrated. Well, mm-hmm. let's make use of them. Autoacoustic emissions, another thing. You know, a simple tool, really fast, yeah. very effective motivator for a musician. Yeah. So I've tried to make it part of my mission. To I've focused on students because I'm in an academic setting, and there are other people out there who um, have done a wonderful job educating the audiology community. So I felt like that was well covered, um, and still is. So I decided I decided I'd focus on the students, and you know, every now and then you get a student like Juan or some others who take a real strong interest and take it and go with it. It's it's, it's gratifying. That's awesome because that's so rare in in audiology programs to have that focus, and it's cool to hear. I mean, everything you're talking about is what you mentioned earlier: the clinical consensus document. That came out of trying to educate audiologists, as you say, and it's so cool to hear that you've been working on that same thing, but from the student perspective and probably then in turn influencing uh, audiology side because, you know, people like Mond were involved with that. So it's really nice that it's a big, it's a big melting pot. It's all adding into the same thing, which is improving the end result care. Very yeah. nice. Anything we can do to broaden our scope and uh, as audiologists and is a good thing as well. Music audiology is on the rise, yeah. thanks in large part to people like you guys and all the wonderful people you've had on the show. Um, <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, it's dropping the bucket. You know, completely. Of, I was just going to say, <laughs> don't give us too much credit. So I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> oh, it's got to start somewhere, right? 
<laughs> well, I think what's interesting too is any audiologist, you know, might be intimidated a bit. They don't know how to work with a musician. They don't necessarily need to know music. They just need to know the clinic. You know, this is something I learned from a friend of Frank and I's, Brendan Fitzgerald, who says, you know, we as audiologists have so much in our toolbox and we know what we can find from that. So, you know, extended high frequencies with musicians, even autoacoustic emissions, speech and noise testing, you know, all that has so much value. And if they think that there's something going on, we could potentially find something in those results and then talk about it, you know, and then at least just give them validation for what what they experience is going on with their most important instrument. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think that's huge, validating a patient's concern. Doing those, you know, so-called extra tests that we don't do with a typical patient lets that patient know that at least you were listening to some degree. <laughs> you know, you've tried to address my my issues specifically. That goes a long way to building trust, and they'll tell their friends. Word of mouth is huge too in, in the oh, audiology sure. community. That's the that's the currency. So I completely agree with that. Initially, after that experience with the patient, that musician patient, the guitarist, you wanted to at least provide some sort of a handout for musicians' plugs or hearing protection. And then fast forward, you direct a course for students to get this insight, this experience. And you actually have this class, like I was saying, is to my knowledge, currently is the only one of its kind. And it's just different. Even though it wasn't an accelerated format in the program, you know, it's something worth more than just maybe a section in a seminar or an hour lecture or, you know, just a simple, oh, well, just, you know, do the putty stuff and then just mail it to them. You know? <laughs> so, um, so it, obviously, it's just so much more than that. And with this potential to stretch out more of the discussion, do you have any plans or is there anything um, more that you would like to uh, provide in this course? Is there anything special or unique? Well, I'm not sure yet. It's still in process. I have to combine the uh, music material with other material, related material, you know, your standard hearing conservation Mm -hmm. stuff and... um, so depending on how much time it takes to get through the required material, um, kind of how I end up being able to work in the musician stuff, you know, every program's accredited and accrediting bodies have requirements and those requirements have to be met before Dr. Bell gets to insert his, <laughs> um, his project, so to speak. So I'm not sure, but I, I do, one thing I felt was lacking in the course that you took on was um hands-on you know we didn't have a lot of time for hands-on to demonstrate yeah and practice really attenuation of threshold which is a simple Mm -hmm. concept but Mm -hmm. once you've done it a couple times 
sometimes, oh, well, I, I can see how this is more valuable than just hearing me talk about it or, you know, using realer measures to verify musician products. Some students have never had their extended high frequencies tested. You know, they might be, they talked about it in their class and they have no idea what it's like. And it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of strange the first time you have your hearing tested out to 18K. So I, I want more hands-on. And then I, I'd like to have more demonstrations to try to help with understanding, bring in a drum set, have more musicians from the music department perhaps come in and, and play and let students not only experience the sound up close, but use technology to measure. I'm always looking to insert the uh, more intervention options, amplification, which is a whole other side of the class um, that I kind of had to sacrifice due to time, selecting and programming hearing aids for music. So we'll see how much time I get. That's actually another thing that we haven't talked much on this particular show, but I was hoping that we would get to, you know, we're hoping to get Marshall Jason on who's, who's done a lot of writing about hearing aids for sure for musicians, you know, probably wrote most of the books, but could you talk a little bit more about that and kind of demystify it a bit? Because it's, it's such a fun subject and it's a fun thing that I think a lot of a lot of well-meaning audiologists are confused by and think that maybe it's a manufacturer-specific issue. Um, do you want to address that at all? The first thing I try to instill in students is when they talk to somebody who is interested in listening to music through their hearing aids is you, just, you have to set a realistic expectation. Mm-hmm. The bandwidth of hearing aids is so limited and the acoustic coupling is so varied. The patient cannot expect that their hearing aids are going to sound like their normal headphones or their normal speakers at home. Right from the get-go, you just have to establish that. There's always going to be the limitations of bandwidth. There's always going to be the limitations of leakage. All the basic stuff that we learn about dealing with occlusion and feedback and entrainment. So I think just making sure that people understand you have to set that expectation going forward. Mm -hmm. Specific products, I haven't found one really that I could convincingly say or have any data that shows it sounds better for every musician. I select hearing aids based on what I think is going to be best for the individual, regardless of if they're a musician or not. When I select a product, I'm not really thinking about just music. I'll think about the whole picture and that'll inevitably lead you to one product or another, or at least a couple or a few products that you can then choose from. You know, I'm a big proponent of realer measures and matching prescription. And this is just mm-hmm. one of those exceptions. I'll fit a speech in a speech program and I'll fit it to target and then I'll create a music program and it's anything goes. It's what sounds good for that person. And I just remind myself those prescriptions aren't designed for music, not remotely. So I always tell students it's okay to program away from prescription in that music program. And, you know, there's lots of little things that people will recommend to have the musician listen to music or better yet play their instrument mm-hmm. if possible while you make adjustments, get the musician involved in the adjustments as much as you can to a degree. I don't believe in just giving the computer keyboard over to a musician and letting them do their own thing, but as much as they want to, I think <laughs> it, sometimes it's probably, probably be the easier thing here. You just go ahead and do what you want and we'll see how, we'll see what happens. I play keys. Give me the keys, doc. <laughs>
I'm sure someday they'll be a, a validated, you know, well-researched clinical protocol for music, but I'm not there yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, I'm an improviser. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm comfortable in a clinical setting, you know, shooting from the hip and figuring things out on the go. And, well, I love how you put it that it's about the patient and how it sounds to them in the end. So that that's always been the problem with doing a clinical protocol for amplification because it's so subjective and it's so setting specific and it's so taste specific. I'm like, how, how do you write a protocol to, to assess for your taste? Yeah, it's tough to do that. Yeah, and yeah. there's so much variety. You know, music as an input is just so varied. <laughs> right. Yeah. The speech spectrum is nice and neat. Um, <laughs> set of data to work with. It's just so vastly different <laughs> with music. Yeah, we all have the same speech instrument, but nobody's got the same musical instruments or settings. That's awesome. Yeah. Because last time was just that it is the last time. So this is something that we ask every guest, and as maybe a silly question as it is, what is your favorite sound? Hmm. <laughs> well, that's, I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that. Nice. <laughs> well, I, I guess I'll have to, nip, I'll keep it narrow and, and keep it musical. Um, the first thing that comes to mind, well, two things come to mind. I can cheat, right? I can have two. Of course. <laughs> Say whatever you'd like. Um, you know, from a musical standpoint and a guitar player's standpoint, um, a strat on the net pickup into mm. a tube amp mm. on the edge of breakup where you hit it hard and you get that nice growl mm. and you back mm. off and you get that nice chime and you can just control the whole thing with your picking hand. Um, that's a pretty magical thing when you get it dialed in. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes not easy to do when you have to watch the volume <laughs> and then I, my, my other favorite musical instrument is the Hammond organ nice uh, a Hammond into a Leslie also again turned up to the edge of breakup you get that little bit of grind and, and you, know, you hit the Leslie and man that's just that's a glorious glorious sound <laughs> warmth it's the definition of warmth I love it yeah, yeah. man if I had it to do over again, I'd probably want to be a Hammond player. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the most fun instruments. Amazing, amazing piece of machinery, man. If you've ever looked on mm-hmm. in the back of one and seen it's all, oh, yeah. it's all wired up and, and the tone wheels, I mean, it's just how that thing even works is like a miracle. <laughs> yeah. What are your thoughts about the consensus document that came out? Like, do you feel like that's going as far as it needs to go? Or do you think we're, it's hitting kind of the main points, the things, the same things that you've been talking about to your students? Yeah. You know, I actually felt, I felt really good about myself um, when that document came out because it was like, no kidding, lockstep with what oh, cool. I had put into my class uh, with the exception of the amplification section. It, yeah. I, I mean, it was like, 
wow, okay. I guess I'm, I guess I am on the right track. I felt vindicated. <laughs> nice. You know, there's always room for more detail on mm-hmm. most audiologists that I have spoken to don't feel comfortable with is ear monitors. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just, they don't Absolutely. know what to do. You know, what's a driver? How, you know, do I need 10 drivers? No. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> you, just, you just don't. I see that as an area that could, that could be boosted as far as helping audiologists be more comfortable talking about monitoring, mm-hmm. selecting monitors, understanding why you don't need 10 drivers. <laughs> yeah. Simple things like sensitivity and because they'll look at the specs. And, I don't know. The only thing they might understand is the frequency response. You touched on so many good points that like we haven't even considered. You know, frankly, we we didn't expect that we would be talking to so many audiologists on this particular show because because it was the impetus of this was to talk to musicians and have musicians talk. But we realized very quickly it's like, well, most audiologists that I know, especially those who know music, they have their music lives that they want to share too, and and seeing it from both perspectives gives you a, an ability to talk to it. And I've heard from musicians now listening to this show that they say that their favorite episodes are the ones where we talk, the audiologists. And I'm like, <laughs> really? I didn't think you'd want to hear that. I thought you would only want to hear the drummer or the, the bass player. Um, okay, I guess maybe we should do this more because they're, they're coming at it from, a, a, I guess, a, a, an eyes open kind of perspective, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, I think your perspective is super helpful, super useful on this, and, and yeah, it's it's awesome just to meet you and, and to get a yeah. sense of to sense of you better. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It's uh, it's a great thing you're doing. Um, it's well, so gratifying you. to see. I hate to say like I'm some old fogey, but you know the younger generation <laughs> taking it, taking it, and running with it, man. You know, you're taking it to places it hasn't been, and that's that's what music's all about too. Taking yeah, it somewhere completely. it hasn't been. Completely. Invent something new out of these little toys that we built. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day um, of the term music audiology, and I don't honestly remember when we started using that term when did we start saying that do you remember <laughs> you know that's a, gr- a great question because when i developed my class it's like well why am i gonna call this you know and i came up with audiologic management of musicians which was a mouthful and it didn't even fit in the space limitations for the course catalog <laughs> that's so good so i think the i i Think the first time I ever heard it referred to music audiology was Heather. I was just going to say maybe it was Heather Malik. I, I have I have a feeling it was Heather too. That's who I recall saying hearing it from first. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I, I I just feel like I mean you know we all know that she's a genius conceptualizing things so that people can get on board. Yeah, so it's got to be in like the last five five years or so. Yeah, I think yeah I had her guest. Um, 
lecture in one of my one of my very first classes. I think that was the first time I heard her introduce herself as a music cardiologist. Cool. It's just so concise, and it almost like it doesn't need further uh. conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So is your class now called Music Audiology? What's, what are you calling it? Uh, I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> Not Audiologic <laughs> Management of Musicians. I still, I still think that's a great title. It is. It just doesn't fit. What I also love, you know, when she, how you, know, you were saying, Frank, she is a genius, but, you know, especially with naming things, Music Audiology. But when she talks about hearing and someone's sense of hearing, you know, musician in front of her in the clinic, so it's something I hope, Matt, that you start doing if you haven't already, instead of checking your hearing or your hearing loss or your hearing sensitivity, but your hearing profile. Why haven't we been using that before, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's a more accurate representation, description, way to put it. And as a musician, that hit me when I heard it. That hit me like a brick over the face because I was like, right, that makes so much sense. Like I think about like my mic's profile or my speaker's like sound profile and I'm like, okay, my ear's profile, duh. What a perfect way of explaining it. Uh, She's got the touch. Yeah. Well, uh, Matt, you clearly got the touch too. And I love that your focus is on students um, because somebody's got to be. And I love that you're bringing music audiology into schools and really inspiring people like Juan, inspiring people to go out and spread this joy and spread this this world and conversation so i mean thank you for for giving your time here thank you for this conversation hopefully this conversation will continue too and we can work together and make some cool stuff yeah i'd love that i really appreciate it thanks a lot man good to see you Juan. nice to meet you frank and uh yeah we'll see more of each other 100 percent Talking Ears is a production of Earmark Hearing Conservation. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode and hearing wellness in general. The theme music is by Scott Hallam. You can find more of his music at audiodowsing.com. The show is produced by Juan Vazquez, Mary Kim, and myself, Frank Wardinger. Thanks for listening. Thank you.